This spot is brought to you by Eaton Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Eaton Vance High Yield ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find smart bond selection from a specialized team with deep fixed income expertise. Get to know what's inside EVHY, the symbol of high yield done right, at eatonvance.com slash symbols. Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at eatonvance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Rogers News. Hello, everyone. My name is Pete Sweeney. I'm here today chatting with John Mark Gilson, the first foreign CEO of Mitsubishi Chemical Holding, a $35 billion conglomerate and part of the massive Mitsubishi Kairatsu Group. John Mark, welcome on the exchange. Thank you, Pete, and uh, thanks for inviting me. Look, I'm going to ask you a question a lot of other people have probably asked you, but there's not a lot of foreign chief executives running giant Japanese companies. You know, the most recent and infamous one would be Carlos Ghosn, who was arrested, fled the country. It was a big, big diplomatic mess. What led you to take this job? Several reasons. First, I like the chemical industry. It's simple. And um, I've been working in the chemical industry for, I mean, 20 years. Then the last 10 years, um, I I kind of um, moved around a little bit the last six years being in uh, food ingredients that I, I really enjoyed. But when the call came in and asked me if I wanted to go back in the chemical industry, I like it. I think I um, it was pretty successful years before. So that's for the, um, the business side uh, of it and the history. Then, um, frankly, I had very gratifying years here in Japan. I spent five years before, uh, lived here, and I really enjoyed it. So very good. What specifically did you like? I mean, you were you were in the same industry. What 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 made you attracted to it? The the interaction with uh, people, the fact that, you know, um, people react the same way. So you can push. There is a lot of. of, I mean, people are thinking about a certain way about uh, about Japan. Sure, like every country, there's some differences, but overall, people are people, you know. And so, uh, if you have the the challenge and you have smart people, they would tend to react the same way. People are very nice, uh, disciplined, and it's. Uh, I mean, I now lived in and worked in in Europe, in uh, in the U.S., and then in Japan. I mean, every country, continent had its pluses and minuses, but overall. I had a very good experience in um, in in Japan. Made a lot of good connections, and um, and uh, once you understand the culture, there are things that you wouldn't do here that you would do somewhere else. Do you think the? I mean, so some people are calling for 40, 50 percent cuts in capex and selling everything that's not bolted to the ground. You know, do you think that they chose you in part because you're a foreigner, because you can make these tough calls that they have not been able to make? Uh, that no other CEO has been able to ram through? I think uh, you're probably right. I mean, there are quite a few things that we need to do in the company. But I would I would say that it's probably not only for a Japanese company. When you're in a company or you join a company where most people have been living here since they left college, basically, yeah, for the last 30, 40 years, when there are some tough decisions to make 
it gets really complicated because, and especially in Japan, eh, where a lot of things are relationship, are driven by relationship. So um, I think that it's actually easier for a foreigner to come and do these changes. Now, it's it would be the same. That's what I, when I went back in, in, in France and, and ran a French company, they wanted a foreigner too. Um, and uh, and they considered me as an American, even though I'm Belgian originally. But uh, the um, same year, it just happened that the Japanese nearly never do that. So that's why I think it's raising a lot of eyebrows. Um, but uh, the challenge is there and uh, there's a good team, but um, definitely there is work to do. Well, you've said in other interviews that you're going to slim this down and there will be no sacred cows. Yeah. There's, we just went through this huge pandemic, you know, which had, a, I mean, chemicals is an enormous industry and there's all sorts of moving parts, but, you know, it's produced, you know, supply chain bottlenecks and we've got commodities rally. We have, you know, demand for pharmaceutical components, obviously, you know, there's, this is coming alongside this clean energy push, which Japan has and China have both now climbed on board. So there's, there's battery demand. How has this shift played out in your assessment of what needs to stay and what needs to go and what needs to be fixed? Yeah, I I think the chemical industry more than, not more than any other uh, industry, but it's one of the few that's going to be really impacted by the uh, the focus on uh, climate change and carbon neutrality. And I so as I said, I was in the chemical industry uh, ten years ago. There was a lot of discussion about sustainability, but I mean, I'm going to paraphrase it, but there was a lot of blah, blah, blah. We'll say that just to look nice and everything. Coming back 10 years after, it's changed. It is serious now. So, and for the chemical industry, all we take, all companies take the right turn or they will disappear. There is a really high risk of the, the they, they will disappear because they will not adapt because their product basically are not going to be bought anymore. So we are right that, there at that intersection. And as a company, as we need to take the right turn. And as you said, taking the right turn, it's going to mean that we're going to have to have a real hard look at our portfolio. And, and some pieces will stay, others won't. And I think we're going to use a very simple process that we've explained internally that we, we're going to start explaining to investors. And that's basically we're going to look at the, at the 25, 30 different business segments we're into. And we're going to ask three, three questions. Is it part of a strength that we have? So is there something that we had there? Are we good? Is that a strength? Two, is that industry growing? Yes or no? And three, does it fit into a carbon neutral economy? If the answer is yes, we'll continue to focus on. If the answer is no to one of the three questions, then we're really going to ask ourselves some tough questions. And so um, that process is ongoing now, and um, and we'll see how it plays out. I'm interested in the, uh, the carbon neutral push because, I mean, it, for, for companies, it must be quite a complex business decision. I mean, a lot of this drive you know, for, for battery-powered vehicles is coming from changes to government policy, not from a ground-up swell in, in customer demand. And we've seen in China quite recently that, you know, the withdrawal of subsidies had a significant impact on demand. But, you know, it, it, some companies, there's a, a lot of noise about EVs and batteries and everything, but it's, it's not really helping the bottom line that much. How quickly can you move with this in mind to, to 
turn off or I don't know what the word is, deprioritize your petroleum-based businesses, given the reality that a lot of people are still are still using petroleum for a lot of stuff. Sure, sure. No, you're right. But I think it's uh, what's the alternative? The alternative is that the government is going to start imposing some fines or cost of, or, you know, a carbon tax or whatever, and then you're going to make even less money than you're doing now. So, but for the chemical industry, I, I, I like to position it in, in two different ways. It's, it's especially severe for us on two fronts. One is because of the, we are, I mean, we use a lot of energy, so we energy intensive uh, industry. So just reducing our footprint in terms of energy intensity is already a big problem, you know? So that's one that we need to solve. We also have another problem to solve, which is, and on that one, I would say, yes, we should go, we should decarbonize as much as we can, you know, our energy usage. On the other side, it's our products, you know? Nearly 100% of our products are carbon-based. On that front, it makes no sense to talk about decarbonization. We make great products. They are carbon-based. We are very proud of it. They are now. We are using them now. We're going to be using them in the future. Now it's about sorting the one that we can reuse, reapply, and basically over time eliminating from our portfolio the ones that really create a problem, like you know the plastic bag and everything that you throw away, single usage, and uh, that cannot get back into any kind of a recycling loop. So these two problems are huge for us. So the energy side and then the carbon, but we have no choice. And that's what I was talking about. Or we take the right turn and we tackle these two problems and we solve them, and still make money, yeah? So, um, or some companies will disappear. Right. Can we talk a bit about your pharmaceuticals business? Sure. Just lay out for me the condition and 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 how your your assets there are working out, um, and kind of, you know, how you see performance. Um, how you think, you yeah. know, is this an area you're going to keep focusing on, or is it is it uh, less exciting <laughs> so i mean personally i like pharma it's um what called a sticky business so it's uh, once you have a, a drug you have it for quite some time and and granted i mean they get off patents and you have generics and everything but overall it's a high margin high cost business and it's a, it's a pretty good business so if you look at what we have in um we have a a business that's mostly a Japanese business, and uh, it means mostly that it's not very big. There are no big Japanese pharmaceutical companies except Takeda. Okay, uh, the rest are in the fourth. Why five. do you think that is? I mean, it, that that just given what's happening in Japan with the, the reluctance with the, of yeah. Japanese in the past of merging, of getting economy of scale, of restructuring their business unless they are really pushed and they are close to death, they will not do it. And I think you are reaching a point now uh, in the pharmaceutical industry in Japan where you're going to have to start merging some of these four or five billion dollar company in order to have the economy of scale to have a nice pipeline. As you know, I mean, it costs a lot of money and uh, the small company have a real hard time to have a, uh, to build a good pipeline. Hence, for example, there's been no vaccine, nothing coming out of Japan, even though it's the third largest economy, not one. 
directly. Yeah, it's quite striking, Japan. right? I mean, and, and it's a political issue, and it's impacting because, the Olympics, yeah. and, and it just seems like a head scratcher to, and to it's, outsiders. And I think it's it's directly linked to the size of the companies. They cannot muster efforts very quickly, and uh, have the the broad range of some of the companies that you have uh, in other places, or the venture type investment like Moderna that came out after 20 years of, you know, um, nothing. And then suddenly, because they'd been working on the platform for 20 years, because some venture capitalists were able to, uh, to push them. So, but um, Pharma is a, um, is a business where uh, we have, we are trying to replenish the pipeline. We are spending significant amounts of money I mean, close to a billion dollar a year in R&D uh, to do that. On the good side, we had made some investment a few years ago into a, um, a Canadian company and we're in late phase three clinical. And that's going to be a, I would say, probably a third type of vaccine that we're going to get out probably um, by the end of August. And we're going to go for approval from the Canadian government and then um, and then roll out in the latter part of this year. So we're pretty optimistic from what based on what we see and i think it's it's going to provide um, another platform for the company so that's one thing exciting the other one is is about regenerative drugs and and basically what we call them use cells these are basically cells you know like stem cells that you put in the body you inject and they go wherever in your body to the places where it's injured and they fix that place Okay, and we've been working on it for many, many years, and and we are now at a stage where um, we gonna we've been getting um, condition approval from the Japanese government to go into what's called a phase two, phase three. So we we hopeful on the the drug side. Having said that, going back to your initial question, what the future is for uh, pharma? I think if we have some positive signs um, and some good success, we might want to stay in it. If we come to the realization that that business is is too small to survive long term, then I think it's um, we're going to have to ask ourselves uh, some tough questions. If we can talk for a moment about about Japan Inc. Generally, you know, you've come at this well an interesting moment in a lot of ways, but there's been a very long push. It's it's no news that Prime Minister Shinzo Abe and and now his um, uh, successor uh, Yoshihide De Suga. Yeah. are still trying to upgrade governance, returns on equity. Um, and there's this overall push, I think, or at least a recognition that, that Japan Inc. really needs to change the way it manages things like wages, working hours, promotion based on seniority. You know, I, I know I was talking to another executive at Japanese company who said, you know, the problem is that, you know, the ordinary Japanese worker is great, but his manager sucks you know, and was just very negative on the middle management. Fair or not, I'm just wondering, what's your assessment of, of the challenges? I mean, you're, you're in one of Japan's yeah. oldest conglomerates. What are you planning to do on the on the HR and performance front? Yeah, yeah, no, it's a good question. If if you don't mind, I will go back to the governance and then go down to uh, HR after. Sure. From a governance standpoint, I think the Japanese government has laid out the right foundation for companies to build on, meaning that the upgrades of the code of governance uh, is there. And it's it's there for companies to embrace and to change the way they do they, on a daily ba basis. In order for them to do that, you need to have people at the head of companies 
to really push for change. That's what we had at Mitsubishi Chemical Holding with Dr. Kobayashi, who's chairman and who's leaving now. He really pushed for that change in the company. We have uh, two ladies on the board of directors, which is kind of um, uh, not the norm in Japan. And frankly, I was actually very pleasantly surprised after attending a few board of directors that it's 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 pretty similar to what I had seen in uh, in in Western countries. Not that Western is bad is good and and Japan is bad, huh? um, but in the past in Japan in Japan a country in Japan companies, um, the governance was a little strange in a way that the executive team and the board of directors were the same people, and so the board of directors was starting to lose its meaning in a sense of it was just rubber stamping the decision that the same people had made. Uh, so the oversight that we I happen to know in the past was not really there. But I think it's changing. Frankly, it is changing. Uh, and it's going to change uh, fast. And like usual, crisis will make companies to change. I think Mitsubishi Chemical Holding is changing because we need to improve our performance and other companies over time will also change the way they do. So that's for the governance uh, side. As far as all the other HR policies, I think you're right. Now, you have that interesting fact that Japan probably has one of the most well-educated employee population in the world. I mean, it, in terms of, of the, the quality of the uh, the employees, I mean, it's really high. People are really, really smart, but they've been raised in a certain way. And on one hand, it's hard to argue. Japan is the third largest economy in the world. Eh? And and 20, 25 or 30 years ago, everybody thought that Japan had the best, you know, uh, management technique in the world. But I think they need to, uh, they realize that they need to change. The bigger the company, the more the management system and the HR system is inherited from a government type operation. So it is as if they had copied the government bureaucracy and pasted it into companies. So people are used to that and it's kind of cozy and comfortable and people do their work and, and they work hard and, and everything, but the focus is on time spent and on if you achieve the process of going from A to Z. It is a lot less on if you achieved something by doing going from A to Z. And that's the change that's happening. So the focus now is changing from have you spent 10 hours or what have you done in the 10 hours? And maybe you don't need the 10 hours and you just need eight hours. What cannot continue is, and, and I think it's it's changing too, is to have a lot of people spending a lot of time um, uh, to do tasks that maybe are not so important. <laughs> because it, there is no doubt that Japanese spend, I mean, if you look at the number of hours spent per year, I mean, in the office, it's like over 2,000. I think in some European country you're at 1600, but uh, the productivity is not better in Japan. Why? So there's a lot of things that they do that they probably shouldn't do. There's a lot of realization now, and uh, I'm taking the example of the hanko, you know, the uh, the stamp. 
one of the major problem at the beginning with the COVID-19 major problem was that people didn't have their hanko at home. And so and they, so they couldn't stamp, so the process stopped. Um, and so it's forcing, um, I mean, to relook and review everything. So I think there is some 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 hope there. Um, Can I just ask HR, though about just like the, it, it seems like part of this is just like the consensus based society. Yeah. I mean, you had I think two years ago, there was there was this big, long, extra long holiday because the new emperor um, took steps enthroned. And they did a survey, and I think the majority of the respondents, or a very, very large portion of the respondents, um, said that they didn't really want the vacation, and they didn't know what they were going to do with the, the spare time. How do you force people um, to go home and have lives if they don't want to? The I think you are putting your finger on something that is really specific to um, to to Japan and to to some extent to some other uh, Asian countries, is the fact that. Um, it, there is still a complete follow-up and following of decision made based on seniority. So senior people make decisions. There is no challenge, no question, nothing. Uh, and that's, for example, in our company, this is the number one thing that I, I think our team is trying to change now is to Tell people it is okay to challenge your boss. You know, it's not because he's three years uh, older than you that you cannot challenge him. You must challenge it. It is, I mean, it's like pulling teeth. Huh? This is absolutely ingrained in everybody. The sense of harmony. There is a kind of a, you know, um, pyramid of who makes decision. And as you go up one inch, then there will be a time where you will make the decisions. And people are patiently waiting until they get there. But until then, they don't challenge. I think it's the same thing as um, for the Olympics, you know. 80% of the population at one point was against. There were no demonstration. I, I haven't seen any demonstration in the streets. Try to do that in Europe, or in some countries, or in France, or whatever. You would have a million people in the street asking to stop. Nothing here, because the government said, even though they completely oppose, they will not go and push. And I think they need to have a little bit of dose of that while still keeping the discipline that they have. Because at the end of the day, this is not a failed state. Huh? It's a highly successful state. Huh? What about wage hikes? The government is trying to get companies to to raise salaries, and that has been a bone of contention. You know, so I wanted to ask what Mitsubishi's approach is there, and also the government is also worried about vast cash hoards that that Japanese corporations are holding much more cash on their balance sheets than they need to, even though there's a negative interest rate regime. What is your approach to both of those issues? Yeah, I think at one point, I mean, the salaries need to go up. Huh? Um, mm. Really, I mean, but the now or? mostly stagnant for the last 30 years here. Real estate price is about the same as uh, 30 years ago. I mean, it's starting to go up now a little bit, but it needs to go up. But how does it go up? You know, do you continue with a system where everybody has a 1% raise every year or 2%? Or do you implement a performance based system where, you know, if you deliver more, you are. That's what we're trying to do in, uh, in Mitsubishi with a lot of resistance um, because people have, I mean, said and said, a lot of people and mostly mid-managers 
they don't like the performance-based system and the uh, that we have, and they want to go back more to everybody as the same, and it's a question of fairness. So, uh, but I don't think it's going to solve the problem. But overall, at the end of the day, and you can increase your salary, people's salary, if you have productivity. Uh, we need to improve productivity in Japanese companies. We need to make more margin. Um, we need to be more efficient. And once we get there, then we can increase salaries. And um, and this is part of some improvement and, and, and removing some costs sometimes that you see. Huh? There's a reason. I mean, you can see it. I mean, most Japanese companies equivalent to Western are three, four, five points margin difference in terms of, you know, whatever. I mean, the... Um, the, in the income statement, I mean, the whatever return they have, uh, return on sales, return on asset, they always are lower. And by the way, it is linked also to your last point about cash. They're very cautious. It's kind of a status quo. And initially, as as you said, the the Japanese companies didn't pay and still a lot, don't pay the same attention to investors as in other countries and most Japanese companies that have a lot of Japanese investors are not being pushed by the Japanese investors to give back some money. Some of the cash that's sitting on balance sheet in uh, of Japanese companies, you would never see it in, in other places. The investors would be crying to get that money in form of dividends or, or share buyback or, or whatever. So you are basically removing, you are preventing a better uh, capital efficiency. But they like to try. Huh? Uh, they like to try many things and that's why they want to keep money. Um, and they are, okay, we'll give a little bit to the investors, but most of it is for us. It's a different way of doing it, but I think the pressure is on to move to, can you please give back some of that money for investors? Because actually it's good because they will reinvest in other sectors of the industry that's growing while yours is probably at the end of its life cycle. So, and a lot of... Well, with, with, sorry, with, with your nothing. specific situation, I mean, do you see yourself, do you see yourself intensifying overseas investment? Uh, I mean, Japan Inc. is a serial offshore buyer, you know, and you're, you're sitting in a, in a rather slow growing domestic market, as you described. I mean, where do you, what do you see your outbound investment strategy looking like? Yeah, first we need to decide exactly into which segment or industries we want to invest. This is part of this, you know, uh, portfolio reallocation and, and look that we've been talking about. Uh, so first we'll decide which segments are key. Then, as you say, some will be in Japan, some will be outside. What we need to do in our company, and we will have a lot of focus on a sharper capital allocation process instead of sprinkling to a lot of different segments, whether they make high returns or low returns, we're going to be a lot more specific as far as where we put the money. The money is, the company delivers tremendous cash flow, you know, but we need to be paying a bit more attention as far as where we want to reinvest that money. The, the split between where we want to invest and what do we give back to our investors. Just one last question, more general. You know, you are part of a, a growing group of people in Japan, immigrants, and you're kind of in a special position relatively. But I mean, can you just talk briefly about what you see as the trend and the roles for immigrants in general coming to work in, in Japanese companies? I hear a lot about 
you know, people coming in to take care of old folks or, you know, working at the ground level of restaurant industries or whatever, you know, and then every once in a while, there's a, there's a foreigner brought in to help a Chinese corporation through a rough spot. Do you see there's, there's a welcoming or, or opportunities for, for people like you at like middle management or just ordinary employees? I, so this is my second experience here. And, and I, I see the same thing now that I was seeing last uh, 10 years ago. Japanese are very nice people, will treat you and will welcome you and will be very polite and really welcoming you as long as you respect their culture, you know. If you don't, then they can be pretty abrupt to in a way that they will tell you that this is not acceptable. And they don't ask much. I mean, if you uh, are just normal and respect some of the tradition and the way they do, they are very, very welcoming people. And that's one of the reasons why I, I was feeling pretty good about coming back here. I really enjoyed the life here. The biggest difference I see compared to 10 years ago is that you can see that the population is aging. And while 10 years ago, you had virtually no non-Japanese working at Combini, a con convenience store, you know, uh, the 7-Eleven, the whatever, also in, uh, in healthcare and, and also in restaurants and whatever, that has changed a lot. And I, I, I wasn't really aware of it. For me, it's kind of hard sometimes because they still speak Japanese and I, it's hard for me to pick if a Japanese is a Chinese speaking Japanese or Korean. So I've been told, I mean, many times, no, a lot and are not Japanese. So again, by necessity, I think the Japanese, they will not do it because they want to. They are being pushed into doing it because there is a need for labor and workforce and uh, and it's just not there. I mean, just look at the number of, I, I read a statistics, I don't remember what, it, but the number of school closing is astounding here because there's no kids anymore going to schools. So they have to close schools. So you don't have the, these middle, you know, or entry jobs or whatever. They're just nobody to get into. And the people are asking for it, are crying for it. Healthcare, nurses, the population is aging, but there's nobody to replace them. So uh, I think they will go really slowly, step by step by step, and always ensuring that the people who come here try to understand the culture and somehow can be a little bit outside the boundaries, but not too much. <laughs> Otherwise, uh, it creates some, some strong reaction. But uh, if you're willing to, um, I, I mean, be yourself, and still listen and respect. I'd say it's the same as in in any country. Huh? Then, um, then I think you um, there will be more people, and uh, and it's going to change, and and people will enjoy. I have rarely seen people, expats, living in Japan who didn't like, or people living here who didn't like um, life in uh, in Japan. I mean, it's clean, it's safe, it's disciplined. The infrastructure is fantastic. The food is marvelous. Okay, all right. We there are a few things that we need to do to conform, but that's okay. It's a good bargain to me. Well, I think that's all the time we have. I'd like to thank you very much for coming on the show, Jean. My pleasure. Thank you very much, Pete. Interesting. I wish you best. Of, I wish you best of luck on what looks like to be a really hard job. Um, yes, but we will, I mean, we will stay stay in touch. Yeah, look at um, Mr. Price, and he will tell you if it's working or not. Okay. <laughs>
Well, it All seems right. to have come up as well. All right. Well, thank you. And at this point, I'd also like to thank our uh, our production team um, for helping us with this, uh, specifically Katrina Hamlin, Sharon Lamb, and Freddie Joyner. I'd also like to thank our listeners for tuning in. I encourage you guys to check out our content on breakingviews.com. You can subscribe to The Exchange and Views Room, our other podcast on Spotify or iTunes or a lot of other podcast software of your choice. So thanks for listening and have a good day. This spot is brought to you by Eaton Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Parametric Equity Premium Income ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find institutional expertise from a specialized team with deep derivatives experience. Get to know what's inside PAPI, the symbol of alternative income, at eatonvance.com symbols. Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at eatonvance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC.